0: Hello and welcome to Clinically Thinking. It's Matthew Cartwright here, clinical psychologist and co-host of Clinically Thinking. It's been a little while since my last podcast. I've had to dust off the microphone and welcome back Don, our producer. It's good to be back. Hey Matt, it's nice to have you back in the chair. Uh, Your microphone doesn't sound too dusty. Thank you. Are those uh, stunning jacaranda trees blooming down in Adelaide yet? Well, we're recording this at the end of September. Spring has sprung. We've got some warm days down here in Adelaide, but still some cool nights. Not that you'd know much about cool nights up in Darwin. Indeed, I wouldn't, but uh, hanging out for those fire-red poinciana blooms uh, that come about in Darwin in November, which would be great. Hey, Don, I've got a real treat for you today. Uh, Despite it not being a presenting issue alone, it's nevertheless a clinical interest of mine, and that is, of course, Cognitive Analytic Therapy, or CAT for short. It's not very well known here in Australia, though it is growing, and I'm thrilled to interview Dr. Louise McCutcheon to find out more.
1: Since we've been recording Clinically Thinking, I've had a crash course
0: in psychology, but this is a new therapy to me, so I'll be listening closely. Excellent. Well, just a little about uh, Dr. McCutcheon. Dr. Louise McCutcheon is a senior clinical psychologist at Origin in Melbourne, Australia, and a clinical associate professor in the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Louise jointly founded the award-winning Helping Young People Early, early intervention program for BPD in young people, and is coordinator of Origin Clinical Training, working with services to implement early intervention for personality disorders nationally and internationally. Louise is also an accredited cognitive analytic therapist, supervisor and trainer and was the founding chair of the Australian and New Zealand Association for Cognitive Analytic Therapy. She's also served on the executive committee of the International Cognitive Analytic Therapy Association in various roles and is at present vice chair. She also joins me now on clinically thinking, Dr Louise McCutcheon, welcome. Hello, and
1: thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's very exciting to be part of this.
0: (laughs) Perhaps uh, firstly, Louise, um, an impressive and extensive career in both academia and clinical practice but where did this journey begin and grow
1: well oh, that's a good question um quite a long time ago now i s- studied uh psychology in the 80s and i went off on a little bit of a tangent personally into um, art and and some creative therapies but in the end came back to psychology because what really was interesting to me was child development and particularly adolescent development and young people i really enjoyed um, the kind of practical things that i was doing with young people and so i gravitated to um, CAMS and Kim services mm-hmm. um, found myself working in in the adolescent teams mostly mm. and I think also um, that set me on a path to be interested in personality disorder because they were uh, that's the time when personality disorder first emerges people become more and more Um, aware that young people are not doing so well and the problems really start to get complex. So after puberty and before people reach uh, adulthood is when you first start to see personality disorder and so I, um, I ended up going to Origin and working in their older adolescent service and that's where we started the HYPE program. Mm-hmm. Um, which was the very first early intervention program for personality disorder.
0: Mm. Mm. It's such an important cohort of uh, of clients where they're moving away from just the family system and being uh, a part of something broader into that differentiation process as young adults. And as you say, that uh, pathology begins to kind sort of emerge in uh, in that age cohort. Cognitive analytic therapy. Uh, did you find the model, or did the model find you?
1: Mm, that's a good question too. Um, it's our our contact with cognitive analytic therapy came about because we were developing um, a program that would target and work with young people with personality disorder, and we were really interested in. Um, Investigating whether there were some treatments that could be adapted for younger people. So at the time, this was in uh, the late 90s. There were really there was really only one treatment that had any evidence behind it, and that was DBT for personality disorder or dialectical behavior therapy, um, developed by Marsha Linehan. And uh, so it was really um, at a time when the field of personality disorder was changing quite a lot. There was suddenly some interest in maybe we can intervene with this really complex group of people, Um, but mostly around the world, people were not that interested in thinking about intervening early. Um, I think one of the things that Australia is really good at and Victoria has been very good at is taking an early intervention approach and funding early intervention approaches. Um so we were looking around for a treatment to try out with young people and we uh, Andrew Channon, Professor Andrew Channon and and I who were working at the time together on this um, project, were interested in in finding um, a, a therapy that might be useful for young people and we were interested in comparing that to to uh, pretty simple treatment that could be rolled out very, very easily, like problem solving and Mm -hmm. that kind of case management model. Um, We did some DBT training, we did some schema focus training, and then we did some cognitive analytic therapy training. And this model particularly appealed to us. It was time limited and relatively short. And our experience of working with young people is that they kind of dip in and out of care. They don't really hang around that long. Occasionally young people do and they want really long-term treatment.
0: Mm. But
1: the majority don't. They stay for short and sharp. Yeah, that's right. They want help when they're feeling distressed and then they want to move on and get on with things in their life. So why we, we liked the idea that cat was time limited. Um, and the other thing that really appealed to us is that you can use it as a framework rather than only as an individual therapy, so that it can guide all your treatment, all your work with people. So the way your doctors have conversations with people about medication, it can guide the way clinicians talk to young people about risk and about interventions for managing risk and and suicidal behaviour and things like that. It can um, guide how you work with families. It can guide how you work with the system around a young person Mm. so there's lots of of ways that the model can inform what you do um, even if you don't do individual therapy with you with them and you can use it as an individual therapy as well
0: Mm, so it's quite it's quite a versatile approach not only at a system level but also with individual clients
1: yeah and i think the other part of it that was important to us was that it was a very collaborative, respectful model. So the idea all the time is to be thinking, how could I engage this person in a way that they own this themselves Mm. so that they really take on the, the thinking for themselves so that when they finish this work, this relatively short contract that we've got together, that they will be able to look after themselves better, manage themselves better. Mm. you want them to be their own therapist at the end as much as possible and of course Mm. personality Mm. disorder might might be very complex and severe and so the person may need uh, help into the future at different times but they might be able to manage themselves much better in between those times Mm. and some people will not need more therapy at all or more treat mental health treatment so it's really aimed at developing that sort of autonomy and sense of agency as well.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, hearing um, hearing your descriptions of Kat as an early career psychologist, I am fortunate to have been exposed to these different uh, understandings of distress throughout my training. And so the perceptions of particular pathology like personality disorder, isn't perhaps stigmatized from, from my training as something that we can't go there or we can't treat or it's unchangeable. And it's quite extraordinary to, um, I suppose, reflect on the shift that has occurred within the literature and clinical practice internationally around certain presenting problems, and that just in listening to to these uh, descriptions of cat, there's a sense of hope that there's mm. a way forward through some of these. Would you say that that's a central part of the model in in its practice or in its theory?
1: Mm. Uh- that sort of hopefulness and um, strength sort of focus i think absolutely is part of it i mean cognitive analytic therapy as the name suggests was developed as an approach that would integrate object relations and dynamic thinking um, with cognitive theory and it happened uh, it was starting to be developed by tony Ryle, who's the originator of the model, um, way back in the 60s when cognitive theory was just being developed. So Mm. it's really been around for quite a long time, Um, but uh, probably not as well known in Australia as it is in the UK. It's pretty well known in the UK. Um, And it was really developed as a a way of um, spanning those two models or or, um, integrating them in the way in a way that would help people make sense of the different concepts and the different schools of thinking because it, even when they're talking about similar things, they use different language most of the time mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. of the language can be very complex. So the approach was really developed as a, a way of trying to make sense and to reduce the, the amount of jargon but it still had the those two kind of ideas or schools of thinking that that um, contribute some really useful things together. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that also means that you can lean a little bit more to the analytic side if you feel like this is the approach for this individual person I'm working with. It's going to be much more helpful to be really thinking um, about Uh, the origins of the difficulties that they're experiencing and their early experiences of attachment and relationships and what that's contributed to their understanding of themselves in the world, whereas there might be other people who are doing a little better, who've had, you know, good enough experiences early on that we can just be focusing a lot more on their coping strategies that don't seem to be working so well. Um, and you can spend more time t- talking about that. Uh, so you can really adapt the the way that you approach things and what you actually do with clients uh, to their capacity, mm, which is really it's, nice. It's
0: quite flexible. Yeah. Mm. Louise, so many of our listeners are clinical psychologists, psychologists, psychotherapists, counsellors, et cetera. Um, they'd likely work from a, a cognitive behavioural approach themselves. I'm mm. speaking on behalf of... All listeners of course some wouldn't but for those that do predominantly work from a cognitive and behavioral framework what makes CAT really unique um, and, and distinct
1: so I would say it's the way that those two ideas are integrated so in CAT what would be very familiar to a CBT therapist would be the idea of mapping out um, directed behaviour. You might think about um, what is, you know, an uncomfortable situation, a triggering situation, the emotions that someone's experiencing. They might have some thoughts and cognitions that go along with that. They might have some beliefs about themselves and what's the best way to respond to those, you know, uncomfortable feelings. And then they might um, choose some actions or, you know, some way of responding to try and Deal with how they're feeling.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, those uh, responses might be helpful in some situations, but not so helpful in others. And of course, if we think about, you know, the the kind of person that might come to need some treatment or come to therapy, they're probably engaging in not so helpful coping strategies. Um, And they're coming for help because they can't really think of a more useful way of managing or more effective way of managing. Mm -hmm. So a CBT therapist would be probably quite comfortable at mapping out that kind of procedural sequence. You might call it, um, you know, chain analysis or something like that. So you might have a slightly different name for that kind of mapping process, but most people would understand that as being a cycle that people get into and that they can't really see their way out of. What I think is unique about CAT is that it connects it to the early internalised relationship that has come from the past that, that keeps being reenacted. And in fact, if in CAT, we think of those two ideas, the procedural sequence and the internalised relationship as being connected and Uh, unable to be separated, really, that the Mm. way that we act out our early relationships um, is what we map in the procedural sequence.
0: So it's combining those cognitive uh, ABC type sequences with the uh, relational uh, processes that trigger or elicit those those sequences. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think we often go from a very pathological perspective in our understandings mm. of you know uh, of the human experience. So I think yeah, how how would Cat approach healthy, normal, uh, normal in quotation marks, um, typical development?
1: Yeah. So the idea is that, um, and this has come from not just object relation theory, but also the the decades of um, observational kind of research that's been done on mothers and babies or parents and and infants and how they relate to each other and then following those people through um, their development and looking at how they engage in other relationships in life. So it's not just a theory, it's also, you know, over the years been able to be enriched by the, the observational kind of data that we now have about relationships between children and their parents or their caregivers so what we know is that if you've had um, good enough caring experiences early in life not only um, would you experience being cared for by your caregiver but in cat we would understand that you've also internalized the the other end of that relationship which is the caring part so so both you're you're, exactly and you 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 can't really only um, internalise one part of that. You internalise both parts of that. So you carry around a template of what it feels like to be cared for, what it feels like to be soothed when you're distressed, what it feels like to be um, looked after and um, nurtured, um, listened to, held in mind. But also you've learned from observing your caregiver and experiencing all of that relationship you've also learned how to do those things to yourself but also to others and we see children who are quite young acting out the caring kind of um experiences that they've had you know cho- sure. the way children yes. Relate to pets and things.
0: Absolutely, I'm thinking of my uh, my niece with the the likes of the doll of feeding and you know mm. wrapping the blanket around and everything that they've seen. So not only of having experienced that themselves, but then replicating the doer, I suppose, of that act.
1: Exactly. So mm. that idea that we have. Um, In normal life, we're exposed to a range of caring experiences. Most of the important ones are the caregivers that are around a lot and around from very early age because they're there the most. But we also come into contact with kindergarten teachers and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And so there'll be a whole range of people who are engaging in caring in different ways with us. And as a result... We have a very rich sort of experience of how to elicit care from others, how to respond in caring ways back, um, how to uh, recognise what's care and when maybe distinguish with what isn't care or what doesn't feel right, what, what may be situations of danger, that sort of thing. So we learn a whole lot of information that's very rich about you know, caring and and human relationships and how to get on in the world. And if we think about, you know, what that child carries through life, of course, sometimes we have bad experiences and we might get a bit knocked by something if if something, well, let's think about the pandemic. How much did that challenge people's idea of the world is a relatively safe place? Suddenly it was not safe. And in fact, our own...
0: Even in individual neighbourhoods,
1: Exactly. Our own close environment suddenly became not so safe. And so we know that things like that can really shift people's understanding of themselves in the world. But if people have had really, um, you know, a, a good grounding, then they're more likely to be able to be resilient and bounce back and to be able to kind of tackle things. They won't be bumped off course so much by those kinds of difficult things that, that happen through life that, that we all know, you know we have no control over and, and sometimes do have big consequences for people. Mm, and mm. if we think about the child who's not had that kind of um, good enough experience, really rich experience of, of all sorts of different people caring for them, they're much more likely to doubt themselves, to worry, to have um, difficulty finding ways to cope when things are difficult. They're much more likely to be self-critical and have a, a much less kind of accommodating, accepting relationship with themselves. They're more likely to seek out people who perhaps don't treat them as well, not because they're looking for people to hurt them, but that's what's familiar and that's what's been done before. So they recognise it in a sort of unconscious, un- unaware kind of way and they find themselves, they don't know how to look out for that and, and be careful of those relationships. So they find themselves mm. in those relationships much more often and they're more likely mm. to have, you know, experienced mental health problems because of that.
0: Yes, yes. Um so, say in CBT, where concepts such as automatic thoughts and sort of core beliefs provide a, a framework of understanding, I'm sure CAT also has its own lingo to convey ideas, and obviously within a perhaps a, a vocabulary and 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 using particular uh, phrases and descriptions that are still workable with lay people. But could you help me understand, uh, for example, what reciprocal roles are, and and how CAT sort of understands um, dialogical processes.
1: Mm. So reciprocal roles are the name given to the relationship that we understand people internalise from their early experiences. So we call them reciprocal roles because there are two poles. There's the parent-derived way of being, there's the child-derived way of experiencing the relationship, so the caring, is the, the parent role, the feeling cared for is the child role. And then at, over time, that child internalizes both ends of that relationship, that dyadic relationship. So the relational template that's internalized is called a reciprocal role. And we call it reciprocal because when someone's being caring towards you, there's a way of responding that that is elicited in us. So when someone is comforting me, I feel comforted. And so that, and then I know also know how to comfort back. So those two ends are reciprocally related. Does mm. that make sense? It,
0: it does. And I can understand then that certain reciprocal roles are a bit like a, a positive and positive end of a battery. They just wouldn't fit, that certain experiences are quite uh, contra, uh, c- contrary to one another, Uh, some might be quite loving versus abusing. How can you reconcile those real extremes in human behaviour? So is it the disconnect or the lack of uh, connection between these different relational reciprocal roles that establish, say, fragmentation in a person's sense of who they are?
1: Mm, That's a good question. I think in in CAD, what we would say is that life is complex and and messy and people have many, many relationships while they're growing up. So most people would internalise a whole wide range of variations on caring and um, demanding and controlling and criticising and all sorts of things that sometimes are helpful, but not always helpful. Um, And some are going to be much closer up the end of positive and useful and some are going to be closer down the end of perhaps mostly unhelpful Um, when you're threatening and you're scared it's going to be you know most of the time that's not helpful there might be some situations where it is a helpful reciprocal role to enact but most of the time it's probably not Um, Mm. so most people would have some experiences of, of a whole range of negative ones as well as the positive ones but they would be able to um, move sort of smoothly, with probably without much attention. Most people are not really thinking about their early relationships when they're just walking through the world, <laughs> um, living life. Um, we're not very conscious of that. But But if we stopped and thought about it, we could say, actually, there are times in my past where I have felt this way or there are relationships with individual people that this reminds me of. So most people can pay attention to it when they are trying to. Um, But I think if we're thinking about individuals who are struggling much more, who have much more severe difficulties and are coming to therapy or treatment um, at a mental health service, uh, who are feeling it's much more difficult to connect up um, and and make sense of why things are going wrong for them. Those kind of people might be feeling it uh, might be struggling much more to connect up the relationships between those internalized templates or those reciprocal roles. right. So they might have much more difficulty, explaining why I suddenly find myself acting in a you know very enraged state or something like that whereas somebody who can reflect a little bit more who's been um invited to do that through their early experiences with caregivers um family members and 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 parents who are. who are interested in how a child is feeling who helps the child make sense of why they're feeling strong emotions for example and helps them think about how to self-soothe and to manage their emotions will have already much more kind of emotional literacy won't they Mm. they'll be able to to notice and experience and and reflect on what's going on internally Mm -hmm. listening to clinically thinking where the best therapists and the best thinkers in clinical psychology share their knowledge and experience with clinicians worldwide learn about upcoming episodes and find out more about our guests by following the clinically thinking facebook page now back to the show
0: Another aspect of the model, then, uh, from what I'm hearing, is that cat facilitates those metacognitive skills of the relational patterns that they have relating to others and also to themselves. That there's a, yeah. a looking above and over some of these experiences.
1: Yeah. So one of the the nice things about the model is that you do a lot of joint work together with the client. Um, one of the uh, important things about the stance of the therapist is that it's collaborative as i said earlier Um, we're curious but also we're reflective so we're really interested in scaffolding the learning of the client to be able to do that reflecting more themselves that's one of the tasks for being your own therapist when you leave so we use lots of tools like drawing diagrams of relational patterns or writing a, um, a a narrative sort of description of the early history of someone as we've discussed it together um, and making sense helping that person make sense of why they're feeling stuck in a particular situation mm, mm. Um, where those early relationships have come from for example that then helps them be able to, uh, choose more deliberately um, what kind of coping strategies might work more effectively for them or what what might what relational patterns they might want to enact with others.
0: Yes, going forward. It sounds like a lovely way of externalizing some of these experiences, you know putting pen to paper to map out what hadn't previously been thought about but upon more reflection, and consideration um, does make sense in a really a tangible, easy to understand way. What tools do Cat use to facilitate that understanding? Are there specific tools within the therapy um, that is used within the model?
1: So the main tools are m- mapping on diagrams, mm-hmm. drawing down the the relational patterns that you might be talking about, and that's the. ABC kind of sequence, the procedural sequence, but also mapping the internalised relationships, the reciprocal roles, and connecting those up um, so that it makes sense for the person about why they're they're feeling stuck or where where those patterns have come from. Mm -hmm. That in itself, I think, is a really important tool because it helps to, as you said, it kind of models what uh, that reflecting, stepping back kind of process and, and looking at together. Um, so I think it really helps people learn how to reflect a little bit better. It also opens up the question about, so what would we do differently? How would I, How could I be more effective at getting my needs met? If this is not working, then what's the next step? How do I get out of this pattern? And so I think the mapping process that we do together opens up the next question about so then what would I do differently? Right. So that's quite a nice evolution, if you like. So that's what that's probably the main tool that people use ongoingly throughout the therapy. There would be some other things that we do. There's a, a questionnaire that we can give people very early on that is kind of a simple list of common are coping strategies really procedural sequences that p- can get people into trouble and they would all be pretty familiar to someone with CBT kind of background there's a depressed thinking kind of loop where you know if you're feeling rotten and you can't, and you feel hopeless and worthless then you don't really try very hard when you when you're doing anything because what's the point it's not going to work for me so you've got some thoughts you've got some feelings and that they they kind of sabotage your ability to really give something a go, which then reinforces the same pattern or the same feeling that you had and same belief that you had, which was, you know, there's no point, I'm worthless, I feel terrible. So that kind of, you know, pattern that um, you might map out. So there's a list of those patterns called, I think it's called the psychotherapy file, and you can probably search it online. It's it's freely available there would be some patterns that you know where where there are contrasting patterns put together called dilemmas either i do this or i do that and i can't really imagine any other choices um so there's a a, a tool that we use at the very beginning to sort of facilitate the process of talking about those kinds of patterns Um, and and then the main uh, other thing that we do in CAT is write down, um, usually in the form of a letter, a, a shared understanding about where we're up to in our understanding relationally. It's it's right, really a formulation or a reformulation. We call it a reformulation because we're hoping to um, provide a bit more understanding together about, in a helpful way, about why people are feeling stuck right now and what we might work on in the future or in the therapy.
0: Mm. I think that wording is so critical around that reformulation because it assumes then that the client has uh, come to therapy with their own understanding of of problems, their own formulation of why things have gone bad or why does it seem to be that the same thing seems to occur relationship after relationship or job after job. Mm -hmm. And would you say that CAT almost takes that formulation that is brought to therapy and then deconstructs it and understands it in a different way or expands on it? How would you describe that process? I think
1: that's a good way of describing it. Um, I think we look for uh, the, the ways that someone's making sense of their situation and kind of looks for the maladaptive (laughs) um, decisions that people have made if you like about that looks for a more helpful way of reframing things that opens up possibility for change so reformulation is um, a reformulating of the client's difficulties so you do it early on in in the treatment um, and it's based on Uh, the joint discussions that you've had in the first couple of sessions. You usually give it to the client or read it out to the client around session four. So it's really pretty early. Um, And it's a a telling back to the client or the narratives about their difficulties and the origin of the difficulties as best you can, because sometimes you know quite a lot about that. And sometimes you might not know that much about it. Um, and it's written in a um, a very non-blaming, non-sort of judging kind of style, a sort of reflecting, observing, noticing kind of style. And its purpose is really to get on the same page together. So the idea is to reframe the difficulties in a, a less blaming way that will um, give the client a little bit more sense of agency and um, personal kind of power in the situation. And it's written in a way that will kind of guide you and the client towards what you might want to work on together. Mm. So the idea Mm. is that you would start off the, the letter by talking a little bit about how the person arrived. Um, say, this is what we've discussed together so far. Does this make sense to you? It's written in a quite a tentative sort of style. So you ask questions rather than say, this is what happened to you. You you might say, this is what you've told me. And I'm this is the sense that I'm making of that. Does this fit it's for you? It's quite tentative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, trying to give the client a little bit more of a sense of, you um, what might be a more helpful way to to move in life and to, to respond to the difficulties, sort of an opening up, if you like, of, of a way forward. Because often people, when people come, even though they may not know it themselves, they, they already do have a formulation or a, a story constructed for why things are the way they are, why I'm stuck in this situation, why I can't change what, what is happening to me. Um, and so you want to reframe that in a way that opens up um, the possibility to do something different and to see things in a different way. And we all know from our personal experience that that sometimes a small reframe in the way we understand something can can suddenly shift things for us. And so that's really what we're trying to start in that process together
0: so really cracking that sort of bedrock of stuckness that may have been entrenched mm. for a long time
1: yeah but not in a bossy controlling this is what happened to you you got to stop that or don't think that way but much more in an, a sort of exploratory curious style like if do you think that that those kinds of experiences might have led you to think this way about your future or about the way you are in relation to others or about, you know, what's possible for you. Hmm. So that kind of tentative language that tries to um, match the opening up of what we could do together to the client's kind of capacity for understanding because we all know that varies a lot. Some people are very reflective and thoughtful and insightful but still stuck. And others have never stopped to think, why am I, what's, you know, why am I stuck now? Or well, why is this happening to me?
0: Mm. There's something about the, the language you're using of that, that, that tentativeness that makes behavioural change so empowering for the client, right? That mm. because the option to change is put on the table, any decision to, to pick up that work and to move in that direction is solely the the client's own um, choice Um, I should imagine that's really empowering for both clinician and client of course Mm.
1: Mm. yeah and you want to um, as much as you can as the clinician or the therapist be the partner who helps them discover what they can do themselves you know a little bit like the coach on the sporting field and some of those other analogies which are commonly used you don't want to be going out there and telling them you've got to do it like this. You want them to discover what they can do themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, the, the process of drawing out the patterns, writing the letter back to the client, you know, exploring it through language and visual means, and you can use lots of other techniques too, if you want um, more sort of, Um, empty chair work and things like that. You can do lots of different things in CAT. That's one of the kind of nice things about that integrative nature of it. Um, But you can uh, help the the person discover what it is that they need to be able to shift in order to to kind of understand themselves better and see the way forward for themselves.
0: Mm, How special. That's the, the word that comes to mind. Is there anything, any research on CAT in Australia at the moment?
1: So we've done a couple of randomised control trials in our program. Um, there's not a huge amount of uh, that kind of research in CAT. There's been some in the UK and, and our own work. Um, we have compared CAT to some other kinds of treatment that I think are also good, pretty good clinical care. So what we see it as in the results is that there may not be a huge amount of difference between the CAT intervention and other interventions. And that is commonly the case when you're comparing two good treatments. So I think if we had compared it to treatment as usual or something like that, you would probably see A big distinction, but because we've always aimed to try and compare things to a reasonably high standard of treatment, there's not a a big difference between the treatments. What is good is that we've been able to see that there's progress and that there's um, good clinical outcomes from both those treatments. Which means CAT is effective. It's just that it doesn't necessarily mean CAT is oh so much better than anything else. Um, And I think. You know, we, we work in the area of personality disorder and there's not much difference between um,
0: It's Coles and Woolies, right?
1: The treatments when you compare all of them. Yeah. 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 And so I think good treatments tend to be about as effective as each other. Um I think what's important when you're thinking about what sort of treatments do I want to learn more about, what therapies do I want to learn more about, what treatment interventions do I want to learn about. I think probably the most important thing is that you think what will work in my setting and a time limited treatment can work in public mental health as well as in private practice. Um, The standard kind of contract That they use in the UK is about 16 sessions but actually the the average number of sessions that young people use in our program is more like 10 or 11.
0: Okay so so quite within the Medicare model that is already available say in private practice. Exactly. Okay
1: yeah and and CAD is definitely a model that's being used in private practice in Victoria and and in some of the places around Australia and New Zealand. Um, So I think it's It is about choosing a model that's going to work in your setting. It also is about choosing a model that fits for you. And I think one of the things that we all really like about CAT in our program is that it's a very um, reflective, collaborative, respectful model where you do with rather than do to. And I think that is particularly important for young people, But actually, everybody, no one really wants to be told what to do. And maybe some people do and that's fine. But on the whole, most people prefer to be invited into, you know, would you like to try something? Would you like to have a go at this? Hmm. Now, I don't think every model works for everyone. And I think there should be lots of choice around choice for the therapist to choose what model do I feel most comfortable using? and for clients to be able to choose as well. And I think what's nice about CAT is that it's a good starting one because it helps to teach you how to use therapy. It Mm. teaches you how to engage in a process of thinking together, um, of reflecting on what's working and what isn't. And that's quite nice. Um, And I think lots of people you know, may go on with, especially those with really complex problems, might go on to try something else as well and and get some good results out of that as well. So I think you can also combine things, you know, you don't have to have one thing and and never try something different. It might be another time in your life that, or another opportunity that comes up that something else might work well too.
0: Yes, that's a really unique perspective to see one model perhaps providing a platform that then facilitates other therapeutic modalities to um, go from there to the next step and the next step and and see therapeutic change as a journey rather than a, a discrete outcome. Yeah.
1: And I guess, you know, uh, something that comes to mind is is that a very skills-based model might work for some people, but I think you probably have to have Um, An openness to being taught skills, if you're feeling very angry and rebellious with things, then probably that's not going to work so well right now. But if you can find your way to another place where you're a bit more open to, you know, accepting the help because you're not feeling so criticised by, you know, the process or something like that, then you may be able to make more use of those kind of skills based treatments. Mm -hmm. So that's just an example.
0: That therapeutic change mm. essentially being accumulative over time and different mm. perhaps models and different therapists. And just finally, then, Louise, if a listener wanted to find out more about CAT or was even considering training in CAT, how could they find out more?
1: So, we do have um, an Australian and New Zealand association for CAT um, called ANZACAT. Um, there is a website. Uh, There are training programs running out of Melbourne. Um, There's two different organizations. So where I work, um, Origin, we run one or two a year. Uh, It takes a couple of years to train as a therapist in CAT. But you can do short um, training programs as well if you just want to use the, the techniques of mapping um, and thinking about people more relationally, so you can do short workshops on relational formulation, for example. And the other uh, organisation that that teaches CAT is called In Dialogue, and they have a website as well. Uh, and then it's also taught in New Zealand. Um, so in our local area, if you like, um, yes. this that's where you would have to go.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Terrific. Well, I'm sure hopefully the uh, the podcast might uh, spark some interest in people getting a, a deeper understanding of what CAT could provide their clients. Uh, Dr. Louise McCutcheon, it's been a pleasure to listen and learn more about all things CAT. Thank you very much for joining us on Clinically Thinking.
1: Thank you very much for having me.